Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we're going to be learning Vayishlach Chamishi. This is the longest and most complex Aliyah in our parsha. It is on the topic of the rape of Dina, and it is from a Perik Lamedala, the entire Perik, up to Perik Lamedhe, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Let's take a look at some of the overview and then consider some of the points that we can think about in the points to ponder. So we hear that now Yaakov is encamped just outside Shechem, and his daughter Dina goes out and she wants to go and meet girls in the city, it seems. And in the meantime, Shechem, the, um, who is the son of Chamor, the Chivite, um, or who is the ruler of this area, sees her, takes her, and abuses her, rapes her. Um, but for some reason, Shvatidbak Nafshoi Badina, he is very attracted to Dina, and he, want, and he speaks to her, he wants to marry her. So Shechem goes to his father, Chamor, and he says, I'd like to marry this woman. So Yaakov hears about this terrible, terrible episode that occurs. But in the meantime, his sons are out in the field. So Yaakov does not react. Vecherish, Yaakov at Boami, keeps quiet in the meantime. Chamor and his uh, the father comes to Yaakov with a delegation. And he explains that um, he, that he wants to uh, to marry his son. His son wants to marry. Shem wants to marry her. And the, the children of Yaakov, the sons of Yaakov, come back. And they're very upset. They hear what this is happening. They get really, really upset that, that something like this has happened to their sister. Um, so they, Chamor presents the, the request and he says, look, once this begins, we'll have more assimilation. You know, we'll marry, we'll marry your daughters. Your daughters will marry our, um, our, our men. We'll have, it'll be a, a beautiful cosmopolitan multicultural society. And um, you'll live with us, we'll trade with you, we'll, it'll be open land, open markets for everybody. So the, the sons of Yaakov turn to Chamor and they say, and to Shechem, and they say, um, look, Bemirma, um, in a cunning way, they say, well, we can do like this. We can't marry, uh, allow this intermarriage to happen until there is circumcision, because any person who has an orla, a foreskin, is a cherpa hilano, it's a disgrace to us. So you know what, if everybody in the city gets, all the males, get circumcised, then we will allow this program of intermarriage to begin. If you don't, then that's it. We're going to take our, our sister and that's going to be the end. So they agree with us. They come back to their their people and they say, this is what's going to happen. And in fact, everybody does that. Everybody does, has a bris miller. And on the third day of recovery, which is the most intense of the days of recovery, um, then we hear that Shimon and Levi go to the city and they go and kill um, all the all the people in Shechem, they bespoil it. At this point in time, um, the um, Yaakov said, turns to Shimon Levi and says, "Achar temosi, lavi sheni You've you've put me in a in a very difficult position with the the rest of the Canaanites who live around us, the Perizzites. They're going to uh, gather up against us. This is not the way to create good neighbors." And they respond, Will our sister be treated like a harlot? That's the end of this section. And then we have a small paragraph after this in the Aliyah, where after this happens, is Hashem um, tells Yaakov to go to Basel, which is his starting point of this whole journey. And, uh, and that's what he does. So Yaakov, in preparation for this, tells his whole family to remove the Elohei Nechar, Nechar the, the, the foreign gods in their midst, and take off their clothes and clean themselves. And then they're going to go to base El. And that's what they do. So they take all the Elohei Nechar, all these false gods, these foreign gods, and then the Zamim Asher Nehem, they're the rings, and the, they bury them over there in this area. And they go to the, to the area of base El, which is the area of Luz. 
and um, and every and they build him his bach there, the place that Hashem revealed to him when he was initially running away. So this is the full circle. And finally, we hear that Devora Menekes Rivka, the nursemaid Devora of Rivka, um, dies and she's buried there, and they bury her under this tree called Alan Bachus, the tree of weeping. Very complicated aliyah on all on all sides over here. Hashem ends with just a prophecy where Hashem tells Yaakov Vinu to, that, he, that Hashem is going to bless him and he, his name will be Yisrael and he'll have many nations coming from him. So a few basic questions to ponder and that is, is um, first of all, what do we know about the, the city of Shechem? So interestingly enough, um, there is a Rashi over here which says that Shechem is a place which is It's a place which is set aside for destruction or punishment. Why? Three things happened there. Number one is there was the rape of Dina. There was where the Shvatim, the tribes, um, sold Yosef. And there was a place where the, um, where the kingdom of Israel split into two. What is interesting is, is that the, the, the brothers selling Yosef, well, that's what they were supposed to be when Yosef was trying to find them in Parshas Vayeshev, that occurs in, around Shechem. And later on, when Rechavam and Yerovam, when Yerovam splits off and takes most of the tribes away from the Malchus Yehuda, the Rechavam, the son of Shlomo, when Yerovam does that, that is also in Shechem. That's where there's a whole debate about taxes goes on in the beginning of Sefer Melachim. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that those two episodes actually relate to tension between the, the two sides of the family, the Rachel side of the family and the Leah side of the family, and the sons who represent them. What is interesting is, is why would this case of the rape of Dina also be connected to this? So Rav Foreman actually makes an interesting observation, and that is, is that perhaps in Yaakov's silence, when he first hears about this episode, he is silent, then in that case, perhaps what the brothers, Shimon and Levi, are saying is, is their claim is, is if this were to be a child from Rachel's side of the family, Yaakov, would you have been as quiet? Would you perhaps have taken more of a stand? And they feel that perhaps already we see a hairline fracture or division between the family. Um, Reuven or Shimon and Levi in this case, feel that it is their responsibility to take, for, take, take force, a forceful action for their sister because they feel perhaps their father is not as well, which comes back to later reverberations between Mordechai and Esther when he says, that perhaps Esther, coming from the child of Binyamin, from the side of, side, side of Rachel's family, when Mordechai says to her that now is not the time for silence, it's not time for the revenge of this action as well. Interestingly, connecting all those three ideas in Rashi about tension between the different sides of the family. Okay, an interesting question that we can have over here is, who has the last word? So it sounds like in this dialogue, the brothers come out on top, in the sense that they have a claim that we our sister cannot be treated in such a disgraceful way, and Yaakov Vino does not answer. What's curious is if you go to Vayechi, fast forward to the brachas, the end of Yaakov Vino's life, when he turns to Shimon and Levi, he says, He criticizes their anger and their impetuousness. So if Yaakov Vinu felt that about their actions, then why did he not have a rejoinder? Why did he not have the last word in this argument here? Um, one could say that the, on, the answer is Yaakov felt that it wouldn't be appropriate, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been helpful to argue they weren't willing to listen until his deathbed. That's when he could give them the real rebuke that he needed to. There's another possibility, which I heard from Rabbi Chaim Angel, the name of Rabbi Yol ben Nun, who suggests that what happens was in the middle an incident occurs. What happens here is that Shimon and Levi are claiming that they will not stand idly by when there is such a terrible thing happening to their sibling. So they, they will not stand by when their sibling is in danger. 
What's the crippling argument to this is that Shimon and Navy are the architects of the scheme to sell Yosef, their own, their own sibling as well. Which means that their argument itself falls flat on its face because of their later actions. What essentially is happening over here is, um, is in the famous idiom, I, I cannot hear what you're saying, your actions are shouting too loud. You're telling me, that you're telling me that you have to stand up for your siblings, and I accept that, says Yaakov. But at the end of the story, it seems like you didn't go by that motto. And now, it doesn't mean that Shimon and Levi were lying. What it means to say is that deep down in their psyche, there was another agenda as well, and that agenda became apparent later on. Now, one of the most complicated questions about this aliyah is civilian casualties. How is it that in, 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 all the people Shechem deserve to die because of these actions? It seems very difficult to justify the, uh, the, the um, actions of Shimon and Levi. So the Rambam in Hilchus Melachim actually tells us that the people did deserve to die because one of the universal laws, the seven Noachad laws, is to establish dinim, to establish a system of courts. And that means to say that everybody is, is, um, is held accountable. They did not do so in such a way that this kind of crime could happen in society, which means the entire society was liable for death, and that's what Shimon and Levi were in fact perpetrating. The Ramban disagrees very strongly with the Rambam right here in his commentary at the, in, in, in our Perak, and he says that actually Shimon and Levi were justified in killing Shem and Hamor, who had transgressed the, the moral code, the universal code of the Noachites themselves, but the people of the place were not held culpable for the evil of their leaders. That was something that they were not, they did not have the power to, to be able to uh, regulate. And therefore, they, they were incorrect. And that's why, says the Ramban, Yaakov Avinu was very upset with their actions there afterwards. So it was an incorrect action, which Yaakov therefore criticizes them for. There, the Maharal, in his commentary on the Gur Arya on, on Rashi, over here at the end of our parak, actually does point out a sort of compromise, where he says that, on the one hand, the people were not culpable for the sin of their leaders, yet Shimon and Levi were, were, were justified in killing them. And that is because he explains that this is a situation of war. They were responding to an act of war against the family of Yaakov, and in war, um, not that one has to, but if a, a specific plan requires that not only combatants are killed, but even civilian casualties, then that is also part of the rules of law. We see numerous halachic parallels to this, where the rules of war when it comes to Pirkuach Nevesh operate differently when it comes to individual specific domestic situations as well. This Maharal, of course, has a lot of ramifications for contemporary questions in the 20th and 20th, 21st century with weapons of mass destruction, with more dangerous weapons which um, have um, less precision and therefore there are more civilian casualties in the state of war. A, uh, another question we can ask in this aliyah is at the end of the story, when Yaakov Vinu is about to go to Basel, he tells Eri to remove their pagan gods. Their pagan gods? Why would they have Elohei Nechara Aretz? Why would they have these, uh, these foreign gods with them? So Orachim HaKadosh says it wasn't because they had them. They just bespoiled the whole, the whole um, city of Shechem. Among the spoils would be these pagan deities. So he says, when collecting those, please remove anything which is a, 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 is a pagan deity. The Radak says it could be that it wasn't even that they picked up these, you know, um, little, little forms of their gods. It could be even the gold and silver they had, had inscriptions on them which were, which were pagan deities. So please look very carefully at what you took in order to clear them out. The Malvin points out that this obviously is also metaphoric in terms of the type of life you're supposed to lead clean, not just your pockets and your chests of treasure, but also your mind from Avodah Zorah, from the types of practices we've been seeing around you and the type of immoral societies. One last question, which is a very important question, this aliyah is so replete with ideas, 
And that is why is Devorah Menekes Rivka so important? She seems to have been sent by Rivka to summon back Yaakov, and on the way she passes away. Why is there such attention given to her? And there's a special tree named after where she's buried at, um, after all as well. So it is interesting that the Torah Unculus actually explains that it's, the word menekes does not mean a nursemaid as we commonly understand it, but actually the word he uses is padgvosa. Padgvosa comes the word, well, the English word that comes out of that today is pedagogue, which means a teacher. She was the teacher of Rivka. Why that's important is because for the following. Argues Rav Neria, one of the Talmidim of Rav Kook, who was the founder of the Benakiva movement, um, and he, in one of his Pirushim on the Torah, he says a very beautiful thing. He says, remember Avram and Sarah had made, the, when they first came in Lech Lecha, there was a nefesh asher and all these souls they had made or, or, or changed to monotheism um, in Haran. Where did they go? So it sounds like they started coming with Avram and Sarah, but it doesn't sound like they made it all the way because we don't hear them at, at, at the end. So it sounds like some of them sort of came a little bit, maybe stayed where they were. Who were those people? Do we ever meet those people again? So the answer is, he argues of Neria, Devorah was one of those people who was transformed by Sarah. She was one of the people who was influenced by Sarah, which is why when Eliezer goes to the well and he's trying to find a suitable young lady to marry Yitzhak, he looks for the act of chesed, because that is the hallmark of the teachings of Sarah and Avram, is the way you treat others. When he finds that, he realizes that this person, this young lady, must have been affected by somebody in the auspices of Sarah, and that's why that's the correct shidduch, which is fascinating, if you think about it, is Rivka and Sarah, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, never ever met each other, but they did meet each other through their mutual student and teacher, the student of Sarah and the teacher of Rivka, which is Menekes Rivka, which is why she is this important link in the chain. Notice, noting that her discovery and connection with the Ribbon Shalom, with the Almighty, was not through intellectual pursuit, not through the philosophizing of Avram Avinu, but through action, through giving, through kindness, which is what Sarah contributed, or Sarah's faith was all about over here. Very profound perspective that Ravneria shares as well. With this, we close a very complex Aliyah, and Emetz Hashem will continue with Shishi tomorrow. In the meantime, have a wonderful, meaningful day.